Hi, and this is the Physics High Podcast. A quick quiz. Do you, A, want to be inspired by science communicators? B, want to learn all about science education? C, want guidance on your scientific journey? Well, how about D, all of the above? So when you think of solar cells, you're thinking those glass panels that you'll find on roofs everywhere and also in solar farm fields. But you certainly aren't thinking of materials that are flexible and bendable. Imagine if we have solar cells that you can literally spray on surfaces, whether it's on windows or plastics and so forth. And to be able to transform your house into one giant solar panel. Well, today my guest is Dr. Anita Ho Bailey, who's the John Hook Chair of Nanoscience at the University of Sydney. And she is an internationally renowned expert in the study and development of perovskites, which is a type of material which can be modified to become solar cells. And imagine to use that material to spray on substances and thus become a source of electricity. Welcome, Anita. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. Now, you are the John Hook Chair of Nanoscience at the University of Sydney. Just in case some people don't know, uh, what is nanoscience? Nanoscience is science to do with things that are very small in nanoscale. So what's nano? Uh, nano is as close to as you can get to the atomic level. Piece of hair is around 75 microns, uh, which is huge. So if you divide it by a thousand times, you get to 7.5 nanometers. So it's 1,000 times thinner than, your, uh, than the hair, human hair, for example. So in your, in your area that you're, you're the chair of nanoscience, what sort of work is happening in that uh, module at the University of Sydney? Right. So uh, lots of things happening. There's uh, quantum computing activities uh, happening. As you get to that scale, a lot of classical physics uh, don't apply and you have quantum physics happening and you have, um, for example, we're using like quantum interference for interfacing solar cells. And also as the size of materials get smaller, uh, you may be able to engineer properties that you would, normal, uh, would not normally get uh, using classical physics. Now, going specifically into your area of research, really yeah. is about the perovskites that you are working with. Your work really is about making uh, solar cells, solar panels that are hugely more efficient than the current technology based on silicon. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so our work is to advance all our technology. So we want to make them more efficient and uh, we want to open up new application opportunities of solar. So, you know, my dream is to cover every service with solar. So um, my background is actually silicon. So I started off, um, you know, working on silicon for my PhD and my postdoc. Uh, and then in 2013, there are a few publications out there um, reporting this, this material called metal halide perovskites, uh, which is a class material that's just got the um, crystalline structure that resembles like um, calcium titanium oxide, which has been found ages ago. Anyway, this metal halide perovskite, this uh, cells made of metal halide perovskites are 10% efficient which is quite phenomenal when, uh, when you're looking at it as new materials. Uh, and then the multiple groups reporting that. And then I started following the publications in the area because we thought maybe we can stack it on top of silicon. 
uh, to form a tandem cell and I can touch on what tandem cell means. So I remember in 2013, there were 83 papers uh, reporting this metal halide perovskite and I read every single one. And in 2014, there were 200 and I just couldn't keep track of reading every single one. And what attracted me was you can make perovskite solar cells really easily. Um, you, uh, in the silicon technology, what, what you do is you purify silicon from quartzite, which is a, a, purific, a purified form of sand, which is essentially silicon dioxide. So you purify it to metallurgical silicon. And after that, you purify it to polysilicon. So you bring the purity level from 98% to 99.9999%. Uh, and then you grow, grow the uh, silicon into a single crystalline form so that you will get the optoelectronic properties that you want. And then you slice it and uh, it goes through another few 1000 degree temperature processes to make it into a PN junction and then becomes a, a solar cell eventually. But with perovskites, uh, you dealing with the perovskite precursors, which is a metal halide, uh, for example, lead aldile, tin aldile, lead bromide, tin bromide, and then you mix it with another salt, which is also a halide, um, but it could be an organic halide. And you dissolve it into a solvent and deposit onto a piece of a substrate, whatever that carries that solar cell, gives it 100 degrees to 200 degrees Celsius, not 1000. And within you know, a few minutes, it self-assembles and it forms this crystalline film that is photoactive, that is a solar cell. That, so that really, that was really amazing when I look at that. You can actually make a solar cell like that. And it still amazes me when I see the students do that in the lab. The color changes to a black color film, meaning that it's absorbing all the light that it sees. Uh, and it's eventually going to be a solar cell, you know, within a few hours, few, few, you know, a few hours later, you finish it off, it will be a solar cell. Take it out to the sun and it can turn the fan, turn a fan, connect it to a fan. So, yeah, so that just um, created a lot of following, both academically and also, you know, their money being poured in, uh, looking at commercialising the technology. In many respects, the silicon-based is uh, the amount of energy that's required to liberate the electrons is very specific, referred to, of course, as the band gap. And yeah. the beauty of my understanding of the perovskites is that you can uh, tweak and modify the band gap in the process. And then, yeah. if I'm correct too, you can then also layer different band gaps so that you can capture more uh, energy levels, so to speak, to therefore convert into electrical current uh, as a result. Tell me about uh, what the challenges is in producing something like that. Uh, okay, well, one of the challenges, okay, so you can change the composition. So uh, by changing the halide composition, so it's really the halide that is responsible for, the, um, for determining the band gap of the material. So aldehyde would give you a smaller band gap and the bromide will give you a larger band gap. So if you want to do anything in between, you actually mix the two together, aldehyde and bromine. Um, but at times, the bromide or the halide or the aldehyde tends to segregate. So you can have a situation where one of the halide wants to go to the... So the film is multicrystalline. So there, there will be uh, areas where it's not quite crystalline. It's sort of like very uh, amorphous. 
and we call it the grain boundaries, where the grains meet. Uh, and they tend to go to those areas. So we call it halide segregation. Uh, and then it mucked up your band gap. So even though you want to tune it to maybe, say, 1.7, uh, at times, given the right energy, thermodynamically, you will have the halide want to go to certain places in the film and doesn't do exactly what you want. Um, but there are recent studies that if you put in additives or you deliberately engineer the conditions that the solar cell in, for example, if you give it a bit of light, the halide will segregate. But if you give it lots of light, the halide actually won't segregate. Uh, and I may not go into the details of that, um, but you can maybe you can uh, engineer it so that you use the cell as a concentrator cell. So you use optical elements to deliberately concentrate more sunlight onto the cell, and to uh, sort of just um, you know annihilate that uh, halide segregation effect. So anyway, that halide segregation effect, people at the School of um, Chemistry in Sydney Uni and also in Monash, they had, they had a joint study. They reckon it has something to do with the crystal. Uh, being in a strain position when they see light. Uh, but if they see a lot of light, um, that strain is evenly spread across the film and therefore you don't have that gradient that the, the cell, the halides want to go to somewhere, bromohydide want to go somewhere and bromo wants to go in the opposite direction. Silicon had a doubling of efficiency over 40 years and you've yeah. had a doubling of efficiency over... Well, less what four years or something to, to that effect. A much ten, shorter ten years. Ten years. Uh, yeah. So, well, why aren't we using this now? So, uh, one of the <laughs> one of the holy grail of uh, perovskite cell is their stability and durability. So they're easy to form, um, but they can be easily decomposed if you're not careful. So perovskite cells that are not protected, they will just die when they see moisture and when they experience heat. So what we found is, well, moisture is easy because you can protect the cells from moisture ingress, but what do you do with heat? So what we did was we studied the cells uh, when they're thermally stressed and see what happens. And we found that the organic component of the perovskite actually outgas. So they have, they just come out of the material. And we found that if we stop that outgassing, we deliberately cover it, literally physically covering it, and not create an environment for the outgas to come out. We can actually stop the decomposition reaction. And so we found that the, the material or the, the method that we use to protect the cells from moisture from going in, we can actually use that same method to stop the outgassing from coming out. So it was like one thing that, you know, one stone killed two birds, I think. Uh, and yeah, so we're able to protect the cells. Um, the cells early, you know, early on, 10 years ago, they last for, you know, a few days when they were reported in the literature. And now we're able to stabilize it so that it will pass the, you know, three main major industry standard tests, uh, which is the thermal cycling, dam heat and humidity freeze. But what we did is um, you don't have a lot of years to hang around and then look at the cell to see if it, you know, if, if, if it's stable. What we did was accelerate test them. So we torture them through th thermal extremes, for example, minus 40 to 85 degrees. We just torture them 
and we're cycling them up and down. Um, we torture them for like 200 cycles, 500 cycles. Also, we expose them to high humidity, uh, 85 degrees, uh, 85 uh, uh, relative humidity, 85% and 85 degrees Celsius for a long time, for a thousand hours. We also thermal cycle them and then we drop the temperature so that if there's any um, ice crystals that seeped into the cell, then they will, if, if we have any leakage, it will break the cell apart through the ice crystals. And found out our encapsulation is doing really well and um, our cells are able to exceed the requirements of the, those ISE standard industries tests. A more difficult question and requires a little bit of a crystal ball, but clearly the technology is not ready to be commercial as yet. Do you see, what, four, five, 10, 15 years to a level that we're going to have uh, commercial applications? Uh, well, I'm optimistic because we're working with industry partners. Um, so our job is to, you know, get those technological advances to make sure we can include, uh, increase the performance, we can make them durable. Um, but then we do rely on the industry partner to commercialize it. And they are the pipeline between us and the, uh, you know, and putting it out in the real world. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic, actually. And there are quite a lot of startups that popped up. Um, some of them are started by PhD students and some of them are started by professors. So, yeah, so I'm very optimistic. And I guess the tandem technology is quite promising uh, where, you know, you can stack a higher band gap material on top of lower band gap material where the lower band gap will absorb the red part of the sunlight really well and the high band gap material will absorb the bluer part of the sunlight really well. And when they work in tandem, they absorb the sunlight much more efficiently and therefore give you a much higher energy conversion efficiency. Whereas with a single junction solar cell, what happens is they absorb sunlight that is uh, close to the band gap really well. But with sunlight, with photon energy that is quite high, uh, it can actually get wasted by the solar cell. So that excess energy turns into heat. It doesn't make your solar cell hot. So, um, and it, we call it thermalization loss. So um, by stacking cells on top of each other, uh, we get that, um, you know, boost in efficiency. For example, for single junction, 30% is the theoretical limit. When you get to two junctions, it's 40%. And when you get to three junctions, it's 50, 50%. So, yeah, so that's a quite a promising technology. And I would imagine in, and a part, it's a deliberate pun, you're in the right climate in terms of the fact that now with a growing push for renewable technologies because of climate change, um, that yeah. you're getting good funding now for your work as a result? Yeah, so uh, we're funded by the Australian Research Council as well as the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, uh, which has been a great supporter of our work. And I think it started around 2007, around that time, and it's been going, you know, it's been going, uh, and there have been talks about, you know, whether, you know, ARENA, Australian Renewable Agency, will be renewed. Uh, and so far, uh, it's been renewed. And, yeah, we just hope that we're able to do good work. And um, I think in the last 10 years, because of ARENA, we're able to um, not just advance the technology, but build a community, build a scientific community, 
um, I think through the program, through the um, uh, few research centres that are funded by ARENA, I was able to meet a lot of researchers that I never knew before uh, across the state. And um, yeah, we have formed a very good partnership as a result. Moving on now to, uh, I guess, a little bit more closer to home. Um, what got you into science? Were you the type of person who's always loved science or was there some sort of seminal moment in your primary or high school career that switched you on? I always liked maths and science at school and I did do well in maths. And I didn't know I was good at maths until I was in um, high school. So someone made a comment and say, wow, you know, you're pretty switch on when it comes to, you know, just um, getting the concepts right. So I thought, oh, okay, well, that's good. So I did well in maths and science. Uh, at high school, I did well in my HSC. Uh, and there were different pathways and, you know, I could have done medicine. But then I thought, I'm, I'm not so sure about the side of blood. And I thought about doing vet science, but then I read um, James Harris' book, and I think the first chapter was about carving. And I just thought, oh, there's no way I can, you know, fight off that big beast. <laughs> and, you know, fed science is not always about small animals. So, yeah, so I went into um, engineering, uh, went into electrical engineering. And I remember the first day, you know, back in the old days, we have to line up in person to get ourselves enrolled. And I enrolled to advanced maths. It was funny. The guy said to me, are you sure? He looked at me. He looked at my face. He looked at who I am. And he already made up his mind that I'm not good enough. You know, I showed him my HSC results and he was a bit embarrassed. He went really red <laughs> and he signed and go, yeah, next. Um, anyway, so how did I get in, interested in solar? Uh, well, in my second year in the electronics course, there's this uh, professor called Stuart Wenham, and um, he's uh, in electrical engineering, but his research is on solar. So he managed to sneak in two lectures about diode and about solar cells. So he talked about the IV curve, the current voltage characteristics. He did a demonstration. He took us to the roof and he showed us this solar panel uh, and a water pump, and then a very highly sophisticated advanced cardboard that covers the uh, solar panel so as soon as he removes the cardboard the water just keeps pumping you know the pump just keep pumping water and the only way to stop it is to put the cardboard back and it was like amazing I just thought wow this is free energy from the sun uh, and I was hooked um, and then I was uh, I was on a co-op scholarship where I had to work for these uh, different sponsors that sponsor our scholarship and one of them is Pacific Solar so we start up that was trying to commercialize thin film salt, uh, silicon and try to uh, commercialize crystalline silicon. And it's like funny that, you know, back then they tried so hard to make silicon behave like what perovskite could do, uh, make it really thin, make it crystalline. Uh, and because back then the price of silicon was really high, it was like $300 per kilogram, something ridiculous. Uh, because there was a shortage as the uh, as the manufacturing so scale up and there's a you know demand and people expand the manufacturing that phase died and people worked out how to make silicon in different countries and they could make in massive amount of volume and there was no no longer any shortage so there was no case for thin film silicon 
Uh, but now why perovskite is so interesting is because you can tune the band gap and all sort of other stuff, right? You can make it invisible. You can tune it to such a high band gap that will absorb the UV light and not the visible light. Uh, and so, you know, they just open up all these opportunities and you can solution process it. You can print it. You can print it like a newspaper. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's how I got interested into so uh, in solar. Your dad even made a quip. Uh, at one stage saying it wouldn't be good to be able to space solar cells on windows. Yeah. So he said that and I went to my supervisor and he sort of just, nah, 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 and like not quite sure, you know, silicon's opaque, why would you do that? And uh, anyway, and then I got a, I got funded <laughs> by uh, Australian Research Council a few years ago working in solar windows. So that was, yeah, I'm really proud of it. <laughs> I don't tell my parents a lot because, you know, the typical Asian parents, right? I just don't want to set the expectations too high. Uh, but sometimes they text me and go, you didn't tell me you won this $2.5 million grant for your, you know, for your projects. Yeah, they always find out from their yumcha friends in restaurants. I imagine in your area too, a clearly communication of your work is important. Why do you think science communication is important? Yes, because they need to see that there's law and there's order <laughs> in our world. <laughs> and um, being able to understand it actually helps us to work with the environment in the world, to work with what we've got in the world, to appreciate it, and also to make informed decisions about how we live as well, right? So if it's not because of science and the, you know, science is working on the vaccines, it wouldn't be uh, probably, will, there will still be a lot of people dying. And just knowing how the vaccines work, for example, then they will be informed on, you know, how they live, how they carry out their lives so that they, you know, minimise the impact of, you know, affecting other people or even affecting the well-being of themselves. And same thing with um, climate and climate change and renewable energy. You know, what is causing the global warming and why, you know, carbon dioxide actually you know physics actually absorbs the infrared part of the sunlight really well and so is water and that's why our solar spectrum you know if you look at the solar spectrum it's got a dip, big dip in ir on you know on on earth why and out in space it's just you know a nice and smooth solar spectrum and understanding it understanding the carbon dioxide actually captures the heat within our atmosphere and then what do we do about it and, you know, how, why are we emitting all this carbon dioxide out? And, you know, look at our energy use, um, you know, in a scientific way, you know, 40% of our energy use actually goes into heating our buildings in winter and then cooling our buildings in summer. How do we design buildings as well? How we use it, uh, energy efficiently? So all these, I think it's very important that, you know, we are able to think in a scientific way which is, you know, an uh, informed way of, you know, understanding how things work and therefore make informed decisions rather than relying on opinions and spin, yeah, and other, other things that are just more um, subjective. Although science can be subjective too. How do you mean? Uh, sometimes the way we interpret data, sometimes we may, we may have a preconception. Sometimes we may have a hypothesis that we want to prove so badly that, you know, we design our experiments that is uh, not objective enough. Uh, we don't include enough controls in our experiments. Um, 
and also uh, the way we um, communicate impact as well uh, and the significance of the results. Some people are very good at it and sometimes um, people may not be good at it. And uh, I think we just have to have a very measured way of uh, communicating uh, what we do. Uh, you know, give, give credit to, you know, to the real significance of the work and the real impact of the work. Let's say you've got a, a high school student in front of you and she says, uh, and she says, Anita, Anita, what advice would you give me? I'm thinking about doing science in high school, in the upper years, and maybe university. What advice would you give them? I think get all the fundamentals right, you know, get your mathematics right. Make sure you really understand. And if you don't, you know, always um, ask the questions, ask curly questions, because it's when you ask curly, curly questions that forces you to really understand it. And the other half is, you know, do work hard, do put in the effort uh, and do try to use what you learn in science and try to apply it in life and enjoy the projects that you do and try to see the relationship between the scientific principles and how it is being used. Um, also, you know, always find ways that you can improve the world uh, and see if science can contribute to that. Whatever the student says, I don't know what to choose, whether I'd agree to go for chemistry or physics. Wow. Okay, well, <laughs> which one do you like most? <laughs> Talk to your science teacher. <laughs> and um, if you need help, there's so many resources, right, on the internet. Um, and I remember back then when we were at school and uh, if we couldn't get the answers that we wanted, um, you know, from maybe, um, you know, the teacher we just went out and, you know, get help. Uh, and back then it was even harder, right? It was all pen and paper. There was no such thing as the internet. Um, but now the kids can go on to the internet and, you know, see uh, clips like Physics High, you know, those done by, when you're done by yourself and also uh, other people in the world. I think, I think it's a bright future for science students, actually, because they just even so much information, if they're able to harness that, um, they will just be more advanced enough. They will know more and they'll be able to solve harder problems because the technology is also advancing, right? Back then, we, we were not able to look at things in nanoscales. We were not able to do things with such accuracy. Uh, but now we are able to do things that we were not able to do that before and 10 years ago. And some of the ideas we were not able to demonstrate or execute, now we're able to. So, yes, uh, it's an exciting future for science students. And you're, in many respects, your work says do both, do chemistry and physics. I mean, your area, yes. you're solving a world problem, but you're actually incorporating both your physical skills as well as your chemical skills. Yes, and I find it um, increasingly important that big problems need multidisciplinary approach and you need people who's got different specialties and skills and expertise to work together. Uh, yes, yeah, so ever since I've joined University of Sydney, I've, I've been working with people from School of Chemistry and Engineering and uh, even in publications now, people look for both. They look for the science, they want to understand the scientific principles and understand how it works. But they also look for the engineering. So how do you use that to achieve an outcome? Uh, 
yeah, so it's increasingly so, you know, it's not just fundamental research and it's not just engineering. You need the understanding as well. Now, my final question to you, Anita, is this. What are you nerding about at the moment? So in other words, <laughs> if you are in mixed company and someone asks you, what are you really excited about? And it doesn't have to be science related. What, right. What's the one thing that comes to, your, to mind for you? If I'm not doing science, I cook. Yeah. And I always see an analogy between cooking and making solar cells. And there seems to be a pattern between cooking and making solar cells because I noticed that people in our research group who make very high efficiency cells tend to cook at home. And uh, especially the boys who cook for their wives. Um, and once I had a student, he spent a whole year, he couldn't get a good solar cell out. And I asked him, he said, do you cook at home? He said, no, I don't. So instead of, you know, giving him more solar cell processing recipe, I said, just go home and do, you know, cook me a dish. And he did. So he took photos, he took videos, and, you know, he told me how nice it is. And, uh, yeah, he could make better solar cell afterwards. And I think, yeah, just using a hand. And sometimes with science, there's a bit of intuition as well. Um, some, sometimes with science, you've got to use your senses, right? So... One example is uh, we used to put a um, dielectric layer onto uh, solar cells and uh, that's a few things like it uh, passivates the surface, you know, surfaces uh, it's got lots of defects and dangling bonds and surfaces are not always finished properly and they're a bit disorder and it will contribute losses in the solar cells. So we put dielectric layer to finish off the surface, but it also gives you an optical effect. So... Um, uh, you know, quarter wavelength principle, and also you can do double layers. Um, um, so you're playing with the different refractive index uh, to make sure the light that gets reflected um, the, uh, at different interfaces, they will interfere deconstructively and minimize the reflection. So anyway, uh, how we, you can measure, it's so a one way to, uh, to quantify the thickness of that, of that layer or that dielectric layer is to measure it or you can actually just use your eyes. And it's amazing how sensitive our human's eyes are. And we were so good at it that I could just look at the color of that, of the solar cell after the layer deposition. And I can tell you it's, you know, uh, it's uh, 1100 and strong or it's 200 and strong. And it follows a sinusoidal um, um, a relationship as well. So it will go blue, uh, and it goes yellow, it goes purple. And then if you increase the thickness, it will follow that pattern again. Um, and I remember we were visiting a, manufacturer, uh, a manufacturing plant of solar cells. And, you know, we talk about how do you, how do you um, uh, screen the cells in terms of the uniformity of those layers. And I remember the comment was using your naked eye. So our naked eye is a lot more sensitive than the machine when it comes to gauging the uniformity of the layer. And that's amazing, right? So, you know, our naked eye looking at the TV screen, if it's non-uniform, we could just tell. Uh, so you, you use your sense, you use your sight. Sometimes you even use your smell. So if you're a chemist and, you know, something is burning, <laughs> something on a hot plate is burning, or the smell's not quite right, then you know you're doing a process wrong. Or, or the pump is failing because it hasn't got, you know, the, the pump oil needs refilling, you need that. 
and the and the uh, and hearing as well. Sometimes you're doing a process in a vacuum chamber and you can hear, you know, the pump is not working quite right. Um, so I think it's also intuitive when you do science because uh, you're interacting with the environment, you're interacting with the process, you're observing, you're looking at data, you're looking at patterns. So it relies on, you know, all the human senses and the intuition. And of course, we're looking at machine learning, right? See how machine can actually think like human and recognize patterns. And I think with cooking as well, right? So, you know, Asian cooking, you, you, they never tell you how much do you put in. They just say, oh, roughly that, a pinch of salt. Well, how, how big is a pinch of salt, right? So it's all, you know, using your senses, using your intu intuition, using experience. And I think sometimes science is a bit of that. And science needs a bit, sometimes a bit of accident as well, you know, People find things um, because they, for example, I heard a story between a Korean researcher and Japanese researcher. They're trying to communicate to each other uh, an email in English and Korean research uh, mistook it. And um, he, um, he makes this uh, material that is like using a solvent that is 100,000 times more than he should. And then he found this new material that contributed to, you know, organic LED. Uh, and I think with cooking, sometimes, you know, it's the creativity and the adventure, the experiment. Um, and of course, if you're able to explain it, then it's better, right? So anyway, um, my pastime is cooking. What's your favorite dish? <laughs> Anything to do with chicken. Are you, I love using the grills. Uh, I love, you know, the ability to uh, do it so that you know the temperature is right the duration is right uh and again it's you know hearing the sound hearing the sizzling you know smelling it and knowing when to time it well it's been a wonderful chat with you nanita i've learned a lot myself as i talked with you really enjoyed our conversation and i uh, do hope you all the success in getting the solar cells to a level where we can make a significant impact in renewable energies thank you for your time and thank you for having me, Paul. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to get notifications of upcoming interviews. And you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Physics High. My name is Paul from Physics High. Till next time.